From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of The Groundsman. Joining me as always, the two fellow dungaree-clad lunatics, Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell. Giles, how are you, mate? A very, very good morning to you, Grant. I'm feeling very sharp. I don't hope you notice you haven't got an aerial view, but my um stripes on the on the on the outfield uh, this week are particularly straight. Which I'm quite Listen, about. I think I think uh, I think <laughs> men of our age, unless we're wearing hats, don't, we don't we don't go in for aerial views anymore. I think they're never that complimentary. Roger, how about you, mate? Are you well? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very very good. Yes, those lines are looking great. White lines, as as I would like to suggest with the captain. Well, Roger, a different sort of white lines to what you were used to in the music industry, I'm sure. But anyway, we'll we'll gloss over that. How uh, how are we, gentlemen? All right, everybody, well. Well, it doesn't seem to stop, does it? I mean, you know, we sort of were the portents of 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 doom over a six month period of time, probably in twenty twenty, about what could and what might happen. And fuck me, it is all happening, isn't it? So every week there's another <laughs> big thing going on. So I would just want to start just because he was one of my very early guests on the captain's table and uh, a friend of this show. How brilliant is it that Rory McIlroy won on Sunday night? Just yes, brilliant to yeah. have him back yeah. on. On the, on the podium, I have to say. One of the loveliest guys on the planet, saying a few things at the moment, which we'll probably get into, which I think he'd probably be ill-advised to carry on saying. But Rory winning, brilliant for golf. No. Ill-advised to carry on saying? What was that, Captain? Sorry, uh, ill-advised carry on saying. But, but we'll come on to <laughs> the PGA Tour in a second. Yeah, but- we'll come on to that. I'm sure, I'm sure that'll be... Uh- That'll be up for discussion. No, uh, before we leave this, uh, everybody needs to stand up for their, their statements in the past. I said that Rory wouldn't win another major. You may remember that, and you two gave me a, a really hard time. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm desperately I'm wrong. Uh, I read uh, over the weekend about how uh, he's changed his swing a little bit because he, he can no longer deliver the the, the high kind of like a, a draw that, that was he was so famous for. He says the modern clubs don't allow it. So maybe he's getting his um, his uh, his act back together again. What he needs to do is just focus on that first round in majors because if you look at the stats, that's where he absolutely blows it. If you look at you know his, his over uh, over par score for the first round compared to the massively under par of the next three rounds. Uh, so I think I've always thought his issue was a little bit in the head, and a win will do wonders for that. So I'm really delighted. Well, what is fabulous as well is for um, when you look at the uh, sort of social media and media stats around the PGA Tour, Rory, other than Tiger, stands far and away the most popular golfer in the world. Um, he has a certain magnetism, the way he plays the game, the way he's off the course, actually, his honesty, his smile, his just his, his joie de vivre and now being a young parent. And I just think 
it's going to be, I think that was a big, big one for him to get over. And now a win at Quail Hollow, particularly that Wells Fargo is a big tournament. Yep. Uh, I, th- I think we will see over the next two or three years. He's still a young man. He's still younger. Than, he's so. still younger than Hogan um, when Hogan won his first major. So I think there's plenty, plenty of meat on the bone, I have to say. Well, never mind over the next couple of years, Giles. Let's talk about next week. I mean, his, uh, he loves Quail Hollow. He's won there multiple times. And he goes back next week to a course I know very well, Kiwa Island, the ocean course, um, to play in the PGA, a, a tournament he won by eight shots the last time it was there in 2012. So, you know, this is it is lining up very, very well for Rory, I have to say. And uh, like you, I was absolutely delighted to see him win that even though there was a bit of drama on that last hole last night <laughs> it wasn't <there. laughs> um he, he, he didn't let his fans enjoy his, enjoy the 18th too much but it, no it was it was cracking to see him but do you know that's why him. and that, that's why he's it's it, there was something a bit sevy about all of that though the fact is there he was on on his tee shot and suddenly found himself almost where he really didn't want to be and found himself somewhere he didn't really want to be anyway and then pulled out the most fantastic fantastic golf and I think that's there's something mercurial about about McElroy and I think particularly it's really interesting Roger you talking about any tweaks he's making on the swing on his swing etc I mean the extraordinary thing about Rory McElroy was how he could generate the power he did with almost like it's a double jointed golf swing and he is getting older so he's he'll be yeah. thinking now about the the swing and what's going on and if he can, if Rory plays well, there are very, very few golfers in the world who can stand against him. And it looks like we may have found McElroy back. And I, I am so, well I am said. so chuffed because, as I say, he's well um, he's someone during the HSBC uh, reign that uh, HSBC were putting a lot of money into golf. We kind of witnessed the birth and the evolution of Rory McElroy in that time. And to watch this young, curly-haired boy, um, quite chunky as he was. Um, sort of evolve into this uh, mature young man who is one of the, uh, I guess, the torchbearers, the shield bearers for the game. I'm really chuffed. I hate it when great talent starts to to lose its way, and um, he's a friend, so I'm chuffed a bit. Lovely, excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, um, I think we will come back to golf if we've got time because there is there are other things to talk about in that thing. But um, what else caught your eye, Rog? What's caught your eye this week? Well, uh, again, I think I'm just going to pass the baton back to Giles. Uh, the main story, I think, would be um, the fans of Man United asking the sponsors, not asking, demanding the sponsors do A, B, C and D. Uh, and I heard Giles uh, talking the weekend, uh, must have been in his lunch break from uh, the groundsman uh, at one of these events, so beautifully about the future of sponsorship. So I'd really like to just pass to him because this is his, this is his domain and just Take us, ask him to take us through a little bit where sponsorship is going now. Using the example of Man United and the fan, the fan anger. Well, yeah, Roger, I, I, I have a fear that I might be going on one of my rants. So you both have Go. a cup of tea, crack on, fella, crack a, on. Take the thermos. <laughs> I don't know what your sandwiches are this week, but I would open. I've got them. a pack of hobnobs, Jar. So I'm ready to go. <laughs> Off you go. Oh, hobnobs! That's good. They got the caramel ones in the middle, so they're the best. There is no other kind. There. <laughs> Um, Well, and all of this comes under the subheading of what we've been sort of talking about and touching on, which is money in sport. And I am a little incredulous about um, the various reactions I'm seeing, whether it be fans, whether it be players, whether it be golfers, whether it be uh, New Zealand former rugby players, all of whom live in very nice houses on the South North Island in New Zealand, suddenly becoming this sort of quasi-socialist 
money is evil and those with money are the most evil people in the world, whether that be sponsors or investors. As they, many of the players in particular, sit in particularly nice leather-clad sofas with 58-inch television screens uh, as their butler goes off and gets them another pink gin. And so (laughs) I just... I will go into the sponsorship bit because it's very pertinent with what's happened after the European uh, Super League debacle, if that's what it was, or sort of maybe just an early indicator of the next five years of sport might be more more accurate. Um, but I, 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 I get very sad when I suddenly see fans in particular starting to, to, to really vent against the sponsors who generally, in good faith, are um, supporting... Uh, an investment to make them more money. And no one should be surprised about that. It's ripped large and, and no one was pretending it was anything else. And, but they're also part of the fuel to in, in, enable. And we all want our sports to be enabled. And that requires money, unless you'd prefer players not to play for prize money, not to have magnificently inflated wages and to play in cow sheds on barely mown uh, pitches, which... Uh, we'd probably be very good at doing. You you can't have it both ways. You, you, you want to, to be a Champions League winner. You want to win Augusta. You want to live the life, whether you're the fan or the player, that comes with money. And the investors are, the, are, the, are those which are media, which are companies, corporations, they're, they're, they're people. They're the ones that are, are creating this, this magic. Now, what I do understand is it's who is the investor, and how to be an investor, I think, is going to be a show for us all on our own, maybe with some guests we've got coming up in the future. Because it seems to me that there are good investors who seem to play the game and who fans either tolerate or, in some cases, even exonerate. And then you get people like the Glazers, who are, for various reasons, and I think they often um, hoist themselves by their own petard, um, are, are considered to be scum by by the fan base. So... The reason I go on this little rant is because, of course, this has put sponsorship into huge risk. If you're a sponsor and you're going after the mighty Manchester United with all of that fan base, you do not expect, as part of that, to be tarnished and um, that your your products or your services are going to be somehow blackballed um, by uh, really strong minority fan groups. And that will send a shudder through quite a lot of football um, clubs in particular, where football is binary, where fans can be very, very binary. And if you're a corporation and you're weighing up how to engage, do you want to be seen as a pariah? So uh, this is going to this is going to rumble for a little bit because sponsorship for a long time has been an investment that many finance directors didn't really understand. Why does putting a logo on a shirt sell me more uh, bottles of beer? Um, and the sponsorship industry for 50 years didn't really have a have an answer to that. They just said, yeah, but it's quite fun and the hospitality's brilliant and uh, it makes us feel a little bit more of the people. And that was largely what the, the sponsorship model was. Now sponsorship and what we've been banging on about for, for 18 months is actually about the power of the fan base. It's the ability for corporations to engage in very direct verticals, vortexes of absolute targeted customer bases in certain places around the world that allow you to sell a product directly and to engage directly and to know everything about that fan base. 
that is really valuable in in marketing and this is where i come from i'm an i'm an ex-marketeer so this is kind of in my sweet spot and just at the moment when i thought sponsorship was going to have this golden age where people were going to understand the value of connecting with real fans um we've got this sort of perfect storm of new money coming in investment coming in new breakaway leagues people my god they've got different ideas to the status quo of how to try and improve sport and it's creating this uh, this sort of maelstrom of 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 people and hand wringing of people tutting in the British way anyway like to tut don't they and uh, sponsorship is going to certainly in football certainly take a little bit of people uh, a sort of pause for breath of is it worth it is it worth it so I am really rambling I'd love to answer questions about it and I will be talking about this I suspect for the next five years of my life because. The last time I saw a sponsorship kind of wobble like this was when Tiger Woods um, and his nine iron um, connected with a car and various sponsors ran for the hills. So this is the next sponsorship model, as does sponsorship in football endure when you've got angry minority fans. And, and just so we can answer the question, yes, of course it does. This will die down. But it's certainly quite a good storm in a teacup right now. Well, Raj, this is, this is something that you, I know, have very strong views about. Um, particularly football fans, I'm not sure about sport fans in general, but football fans, you know, what you've seen as this story has unfolded, as I've looked at it, it's kind of backed up everything you've said through the years, frankly. But how have you, how have you seen the events the last week or so? Um, well, I'm not going to go back to the, the thing about the, the, the Euro, the Super League. Um, let's just concentrate a little bit on sponsorship. I think we've got a, a strange situation now. We have got, regardless of the Glazers and regardless of European Super Leagues, we've got sponsors that are very sensitive. If you think about, what was it, Justin Thomas and uh, the golfer, you know, um, they, they are very, very reactive to what they think is not absolutely perfectly in the zeitgeist of, of what they perceive to be the zeitgeist. And that's a whole podcast in itself, what is real and what is reality around political correctness and what you can say and what you can't say. So they're already very sensitive. Um, I, I I can understand fans when they uh, they talk about the Glazers and they don't like them. I think Giles's point is right there, that they, they don't do themselves any favours. Um, but listen, you know, uh, I, I I don't think that's the way the fans should go on on this um, this uh, protest um, for the m many different reasons. The sponsors they should be a little bit protected from this. If the fans don't like uh, what's going on, they've got a very simple option, which is do not renew your season ticket. Very very simple protest. Uh, none of them want to do that because they believe that. They are not customers. This isn't a, um, you know, um, vote with your feet type thing that they do because their football club is, is a non-negotiable in terms of the way they run their life. So they will always renew their season tickets. And and, and that that kind of like thing is, is part of the problem, as I said many times over the, the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, Man United have already lost a sponsor, the training kit, uh, training ground. I think it's something called the hut. They've withdrawn. Um I would like to take Giles's point a little bit because this is all joined up. Um, just follow the money. Just follow the money. What you have got here just now 
it's not really just about sponsorship. It's about a simple equation, which is this. Two stakeholders in the world of sport, fans and the athletes, have got no desire to control the cost of wages. None whatsoever. You know what the fan thinks, just pay him what he fucking wants and don't be so tight, you know, sung to the chairman. Uh, that's that's football. That's sport in general, really. So they, they don't care how much they are asking for the business of sport to be run uh, uneconomically. They don't care. Obviously, athletes don't click care. Um, and then when they don't have any money and they need a new financer, they've got a real issue with the terms of that financer. They, 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 they want to pick and choose. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. If you can't run your business sustainably, you have to deal with the terms of the people who are going to bail you out. And, and you know, that's what I would say, Grant. And I would say as a second part of this, if we go on to it later, I genuinely believe that we are about to see a step change of enormous uh, length and, 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 and profundity uh, to, 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 to how players uh, deal with, with all of this. You know, what, what I would say is this, uh, football treats um, football players as if um, it's a seller's market. Whereas it's a buyer's market. If you put it into your head, the fact that 99 out of 100 professional players are easily switched in and out with somebody else, you realize you've got all the negotiating power. For some reason, football does not want to see that it's a buyer's market. They have the power. They prefer to let it be treated as a seller's market uh, where guys like Mino Royola have the power. And that's what generates uh, where we are today. Mino Raiola generates the European Super League. Nobody connects the dots on that. And that's why I believe if you follow the money, those dots are going to be erased. We're going to see a new model completely for player-athlete remuneration. Well, Roger, I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I cannot let you leave that there. When you're talking about big step changes that we're going to come back to later, who knows where the three of us end up waffling away to. So I'm going to keep you on that for now. So, so talk to a little bit more about that. Uh, explain what you mean by it, and, because it sounds like something A, you've thought a lot about, which I know you have, but B, something that's incredibly important. Right. Um, okay, so here's where I start on this. Uh, the relationship between a football club and the players is a one-way street of, of incredible unfairness. You sign a contract at the start of, of, the, of the term. If the player does well in the first six months of the contract, the minoriolas of this world come knocking on your door saying uh, double his wages, uh, bonuses here, there and everywhere or else he's walking at the end of the season and the clubs cave why did why does firstly Mina Raiola ask this, and and secondly why do the clubs cave? It's because the fan irrationality is the elephant in the room. Mino knows this, uh, the club knows this, and they don't want to uh, they don't want to uh, act professionally. Uh, you why is it unfair? Because if you sign uh, Eden Hazard at Real Madrid on a contract, and for two years he stinks out the whole stadium, you're not going to get a discount. Uh, you're not going to get a discount. So the flexibility and player remuneration only goes one way. Uh, that's just that, that, that's why we're bust as an industry. That, that's what, just in a simple phrase. That's why we're bust. Mina Raiola takes twenty million out of a deal to place Haaland in one club or another, and then you look over the roads and what do you see? You see Kevin De Bruyne without an agent 
employing a data agency to make an irrefutable case to what he brings to uh, Man City or indeed any other club. And he says, this is what I do for you. This is how you should pay me. Uh, I saw uh, other players, uh, Oxland Chamberlain, saying the same thing um, this week in, in the Athletic. Uh, I'm telling you, um, just like data is changing the world of sponsorship by being able to show exactly where the return on investment comes from, data is going to do this for the player side. And you're going to see the rise of the data-driven sports agency for players. Just like we've seen it for in Two Circles and Pump Jack for uh, sponsorship and everything like that, you're going to see it for players. And then people will realize very quickly, like I said at the start of this, 99 out of 100 players are switchable in and out. So do not cave to, you know, the little hot streak they get for, for, for two months uh, and you just give them the rise. Do not cave to that. Just go follow the data and I will put I will put my hand on the fire here and say, in four years' time, we will not see the super agents anymore. Well, I'd, lo- I'd love to think you were right. I mean, that's that's a huge change, and and one can only imagine it to be a wholly positive one for the game, no? Well, the game needs to get into financial sustainability, Grant. Uh, what stops that, and I know it's not a popular view, what stops that is the fan irrationality and pressure for um, a club, a board of directors, a CEO to not in any way seed ground to a player who's got the upper hand in that moment in time. Uh, and that's made the, the industry bust. And I'm talking about Barcelona, Real Madrid bust. I'm not talking about Kettering Town. So that can't go on. Um, you know I really liked uh, the, the salary cap and the Super League. Uh, all this stuff needs to come back, but I just am a believer in the data. And, and you look at the Kevin De Bruyne stuff and you look at some of the people out there that, have been, that are able to look at the influence of players beyond just assists and goals, but really look into what their whole um, game contribution is from movement off the ball to out. Honestly, it's going to become very, very normal and, and such so normal that it will seem that uh, you won't buy a player until you've got a player survey, like you won't buy a house without a proper, a proper report. The people that are able to do that and, and then, you know, not just throw the data at you, but throw it with insight, throw it with EQ analysis, throw it with, uh, you know, dressing room compatibility, um, maybe throw in a little bit of machine learning and say, well, if, if he brings in, if we bring him in, what does it do for the rest of the dressing room and the team? And will this player get better or worse? That's where we're going to be. And, and I've said this before, clubs are going to be run by Guys and girls that get PhDs in maths and physics. Rog, is it fair to say that we've been talking about the the landscape of sport in general um, has been pretty has been pretty ropey for some time, and actually the data revolution that you're talking about, whether it's be on the field, in terms of as you're talking about with football so eloquently, or where you talk about the investment side, which is investments coming into sport because of the power of the fan um, through data. Those are going to be the agents of change to help sport guide itself through, which was a commercial model, which, as I say, was already on the ropes in the ninth round and was not sustainable. If we if we move our attentions, because I'd love to hear both of your thoughts and I've got them myself, is you look at another sport. We've talked about rugby union ad nauseam because this is a very middle class game in certain countries in the world where private um, equity is coming into the sport. And yet the most valuable brand 
in the sport, whether you like it or, or, or loathe it, uh, is the All Blacks. It's the one part yeah. of rugby that is understood beyond the rugby world. If you go to America, they will have heard of the All Blacks. They may not know much about rugby, but the All Blacks is the most successful team in the world, I think, statistically, depending on what statistics you look at. And yet the New Zealand Rugby Union for quite a long time has been virtually bankrupt. And yeah. therefore they are looking right now um, to, to do a deal with Silver Lake, who are a big Anglo-American private equity business, enormous one, in fact. And that is being met with very mixed resistance, particularly by former players in New Zealand. And yet, and yet, and I understand the whys and the wherefores, and I absolutely understand the need to protect culture, heritage, and the All Blacks has it more than, than most, is if the model wasn't working, you have to look for plan B. And plan B is extra finance coming in to help re-gear and, and, and to gear up um, what is a franchise that may be brilliant on the field, but off the field isn't working. And it seems to me that what you're talking about and what we're talking about all the time is that this data analytics that provides both performance and fan and therefore investment um, reality is going to help sport and change the model forever. And that for those of us who love sport and want to see sport on the screens and we want to see nice stadia with nice, uh, nice toilets and uh, nice concessions, that all comes at a cost. Otherwise, the, the model continues that we get into the 10th round and we're really on our knees. Joe, there, there, is another, there is another answer to this, Charles, and that is just appallingly bad management, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And if you look at the All Blacks, there is no reason for them to be struggling financially other than bad management, period. That's it. So uh, once the horse has left the barn, yes, I agree. If, you've, if your bad management has led to a pay structure that's unaffordable um, and that's what's kind of screwed you over, then, okay, maybe... It, it it brings us to the door of what you were just talking about, but ultimately, it's just poor management. And and I would think that the the All Blacks is perhaps the one franchise that playing for that shirt means more than money to the people down there. So there is a way I'm sure that you could restructure that business without private equity. I think that's a fair that 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 is a fair fair point, Grant, because. And it goes back to the old commercial model of being unsustainable. And therefore, the management of many, many sports has been unsustainable. They haven't been able to keep themselves going. And you're right. Is private equity just the sort of the last chance saloon, the, the, the parachute that can, can help? But this is where we are. So therefore, you're right. Had you gone back 15 years, 20 years, when Rugby Union in particular went professional, I guess it was in 1995, um, the sport went became Wild West, and it's still not really settled down. But then you look at, at football, which has been professional for a very, very long time. That's still not very settled down. It, you had the haves and the have-nots, etc. There's a massive imbalance. And I think what's, for me, what's most interesting about the, the business of sport, which was never set up, sport historically was never set up as a business. It was often set up, particularly cricket, through gambling. It was often about money, but it wasn't set up as business it was set up um for for, for uh, i guess for for people to participate and then of course then there was a creation of, of a sort of the, the the pyramid of success but now what sport 
is beginning to have to do in the 21st century is set itself up professionally. And as you say, that may not be about taking private equity money, but certainly those who are in management to make sure that it is managed in a way that is sustainable, because it was reaching a point, many sports, where it was unsustainable. But, but if you look, let, let's stay on this for a second, because um, you, you, everything I know and understand about the All Blacks is every single person who's, who's pulled on that black jersey would have paid to do it. Right, they don't need paying for this. You look at the Ryder Cup, the players in the Ryder Cup don't get paid to play on the Ryder Cup team. There is surely a way that these these associations can, at the national level and international level, can actually make a, an ungodly amount of money, whether it be from sponsorship or whatever it may be from Giles, without selling out to private equity because they don't have to pay their players. You know, you, 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 these guys get a stipend to pay for the for the orders. They make all their money from from club rugby and from and from you know uh, earnings on the PGA Tour in the case of the Ryder Cup. So, what is to stop you taking that model and just making sure that you maximize your commercial income rather than what what are you what are you what are you wasting all that money on? If you're the All well, Blacks, how have they done this? Let, let me let me, I may be wrong here. So rugby's not my strong suit, but th- this is what I think. I I believe the understanding is here. Um, you can't play for the All Blacks unless you're playing uh, club club rugby in New Zealand. Um, club rugby in New Zealand doesn't make any money. Yep. Uh, so you, the two examples you gave, um, like the Ryder Cup, these guys are making a lot of money elsewhere, and they Absolutely. can afford. But this isn't the case with the with the rugby players in, in the All Blacks in New Zealand. They don't have that pot of gold that allows them to, let's say, throw in their services uh, for for the the All Black national team um, uh, for free. I, I think the the reason that all of this is happening is that Southern Hemisphere rugby, as a model, as a club model, whatever you want to call it, uh, week by week, uh, bread and butter doesn't exist. Everything I know about rugby is that the Southern Hemisphere uh, game is dying. That's why South Africa's, you know, coming into Pro 14. I, I don't know, but I think that's the reason. And, 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 and you know, the, I, I kind of agree with Giles a little bit. Um, uh, the, the, this thing about we must prever- preserve the traditions, we must preserve the traditions, uh, but, you know, pay me everything I want. Uh, sports relatively easy as a business. Uh, your main cost line is the cost of players. And if you can control that, then you can run it at a pretty, at least break even. Um, if you're in a marketplace like I would say New Zealand rugby or Scottish football, which is a small marketplace, the problem is you can't grow the top line, which means you can't play the players, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and this I is where Roger, Roger, just follow the money. Well, and this is why the, the, the model is it's partly geographic, it's partly demographic. There are, in New Zealand, there are not that many people. That's not their fault. It's just where they are. And they're a long way from anywhere. It's like being in Norwich. You're only going to New Zealand if you're going there. <laughs> and 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 that and beautiful place when you get there. I've spent, as people who know me now, I've spent quite a lot of my t- life in New Zealand for, for various reasons we won't get into. But here's the thing. What uh, private equity is saying and Silver Lake in particular, I think, I'm not privy to the conversations, is this very powerful global brand that is New Zealand rugby, or the All Blacks in particular, if connected properly through technology and becomes so much more than just the New Zealanders playing at Aden Park, mate, but actually playing um, uh, and being using their brand around the world, they'll make a lot more money because there is a big latent 
fan base. But under the way it's been run for years and years, it's been run as a uh, extended rugby club, which is fine, but it wasn't going to make any money. The opportunities, and I'm not whether Silver Lake are the, are the knights in shining armour or not, the answer has to be to create this into a, a, a monetized super brand rather than just an emotional super brand. And that's that's been the problem to date. But, but Charles, with everything you know from spending all that time in New Zealand, put yourself in the minds of the fans down there. Because I, I, I think Roger's right about football fans, but I don't think that is a blanket catch-all that extends necessarily to, to New Zealand rugby fans. So uh, from what I understand and from what I've witnessed over the years, the tradition is so much more important to New Zealanders when it comes to rugby and the All Blacks than the money side of it. You know, you talk about they want great stadiums and wonderful concessions. I don't think they do. I think they want their rugby. I think they want that pure rugby that uh, that they're so proud of down there and means so much to them. You know, we, we, we all saw these um, all or nothing show on, on Amazon right, yeah. with the, with the behind the scenes thing. We, and we saw these guys living very humble lives in very small houses, which I'm sure are, are perfectly normal in New Zealand. And they're just like everyday superstars. And that, I think that means something, not just to the players, but to the fans. I, I, God, I would think I, if I anybody love, could. I love no, you I, so much. You're such a romantic. I, 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 I am, Roger. I am. So, but, much. so let's, let's, let's have a look at the world-class New Zealand rugby player who marries a, a beautiful girl down there and they a young family. And this chap, because he's living like there, is getting a fraction of what he could earn in England and France. And he, as a proper bloke, says, I need to think firstly of my family. I need to give them the best future I can. I'm off to play for Toulon. Um, and all of a sudden, the New, New Zealand Rugby Association says you're no longer an all black. Yep. That, that's where they are. As I say, I may be wrong. This isn't my strong suit, but that is my understanding of the conundrum of New Zealand rugby yeah. or indeed no, Australian I, I, rugby. I, Roger, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But look at look at Dan Carter, right? One of the most legendary All Blacks of all time. When did he go and start to play rugby in Europe? Late, I think. Yeah, right? The, the payday's there. The payday is there. If you are a, a, an All Black star, you can go and earn that money at the tail end of your career. And you can, you'll get paid big money to go and pay. Let's hope they don't get an injury. But no, obviously, obviously that is that is the big that is the big um the big kind of bogey out there that you don't know about. But you know, insurance can take care of that. But my point is I just think that New Zealand rugby is very different. I think New Zealand rugby is as close as we're gonna get in this day and age to 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 sticking to somewhat amateur values. Um to, to not being all about the professional side of the game and it all being about the money first and profitability and all this. I, I think that I understand it's likely going to happen, but I think the All Blacks and private equity is the most unholy alliance I can imagine in sport. Well, and, and I do, the, the, the mystique of the All Blacks, the, um, the culture, you're absolutely right. It, it is in every single citizen of that country to be a supporter of of, New, of the All Blacks is something that only the Welsh come close with 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 their fandom of of rugby. It's it's in the blood, and that is undoubtedly true. And without that, you wouldn't have this mystique that creates the brand, that creates the value, right? So I, all of that I get, and it has to be preserved and and treasured. 
But my God, the Kiwis hate it when they lose, right? They really hate it. They, they all go in a sulk <laughs> for about three weeks and they have absolutely no sense of humour about it. I heard a lovely quote. I can't remember. No romance at that point. No, no, that, but it's interesting. Someone said the difference between Australia and New Zealand when it came to rugby was that um, New Zealanders, Aussies tend to be quite good losers, right? They'll play hard, but they can, they can shake your hand after the game. The reason why New Zealanders find it so difficult to lose is they're scared of losing because they're scared of, of what that will mean for the country, for their family. For, it, it runs so, so deep, right? Which is what makes this extraordinary brand so very special. And as I say, I've, I, I remember standing up in front, in front of about 200 New Zealanders reminding them the last time Wales uh, beat um, New, <laughs> New Zealand, which was in, I think, 1958, because it was a chap called Morgan who scored the winning points. <laughs> and there was not a ripple of laughter. <laughs> they were still 55 years later in a sulk about it. <laughs> I was trying to be funny because in 1908, the last Welshman before that was also called Teddy Morgan, who scored the winning <laughs> try. And still they wouldn't fucking laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't remember that. It was a bad. That was a bad foul, mate. That was a bad foul. You can't have that. You can't have that at all. No, no, no way. We didn't lose that game. No, that was just unlucky. It was weather. It was a weather and a sheep on the pitch. I should think. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> going back to New Zealand. Um, but what I do think is, if they want to preserve that mantle of being at the top flight in a modern sporting environment now, where more money is coming into sport, they're going to need. They're going to need finance, not just heritage. You know the, the the thing that comes across that that, that was that was excellently put. Uh, also, your points, Grant, are superb. What comes across here is the absolute need for EQ in doing these deals. These didn't deals need to get done because the the sport is is bust or it needs to grow. It needs to invest in new models, new distribution, new tech. We know all that. It needs capital. Um, capital wants to give it. Sport doesn't like the terms. God is crying out for somebody that can sit both sides of the table with credibility and gravitas and say, lads, girls, we need to sort this. And both of us are going to have to give up something. That's what I see the next year's. And it's interesting. I had a conversation the other day with our uh, our former guest, uh, Jerry Cardinale, and, uh, in, in the States. We were just shooting the breeze about something. Just bought Malaga, I think. Spanish football club. Yeah, well, he's just announced that. But but I said to him, he was sort of asking me my, my thoughts on what had happened with the European Super League. And it's exactly that point. Um, it's not just about the money. And we've talked about this before. It's got to be clever, sensible, EQ'd money because you just pile money into sport. It's not going to work either for the fans or the players. The, the equation can get it very, very badly. There can, the, the equation can be very badly unbalanced. And therefore, the right investors other investors who understand the whole picture. And too often, I think, particularly when money comes from without, outside uh, of the sports industry, without understanding the sensitivity on the tiller, it's the most sensitive tiller in the world. You get it wrong, you're heading for an iceberg. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's fair, Giles. Fair. Well, let, let's um, we, we touched on this at the at the top of the show, and and we, we're talking about money and sports, so it seems only natural that we go back to golf. Um, and uh, the kind of re-emergence once again of the 
of the of oh, this. Oh, you this mean it hasn't gone sa- away? This, Shock horror! Yeah, yeah, Shock right. horror! <laughs> of this, of the Saudi-backed. Uh, I don't know what they call it. I guess they can't call it Super League now, Roger. That's a bit tainted. So whatever they're going to call no, it, I think I they're calling it Super League Golf now. But they've probably gone back to their. They've they've had all yeah. sorts of uh, nomenclatures. I think they're probably scratching their heads and just call it. Something oh yeah, else. I would think so too. I would think so too. But look, that, uh, yeah, Roger. You, you, obviously, you, you make a joke about it, but you're right. It's not going away. Um, but again, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself back in the same place, Rog, as as the romantic, because again, golf is something that the top forty players in the world, uh, taking that number, that's the number I've seen bandied around in terms of the size of this tour. They are getting paid millions of dollars already. Now, the Mickelsons of the world, who are at the tail end of their career and are maybe about to go off and play on the Champions Tour for relative peanuts, I can understand that. But I think, and and I don't know whether this is going to hold out for more than one more generation or not, we'll see, but the tradition in golf, if you're at that level, this is about so much more than money. This is about putting yourself amongst a handful of greats of the game. You know, there are only a handful of people who've won the Grand Slam. You know, Rory's a Masters win away from that. There are only a handful of people who've won multiple major championships. And when you're in the top echelon of professional golf you are getting paid millions in sponsorship you're getting paid appearance fees you're playing for enormous prize money every week and i just don't buy that the saudi tour is going to be able to persuade the brooks kepkers the dustin johnsons the people they need basically to make that thing a success i don't think they're going to be able to persuade them to give up their chance at being held up alongside the Ben Hogan's, the Gene Sarazen's, the Sam Snees, the Nicholas's of the world, <clears throat> excuse me, for a for a chance to play for multiple millions of dollars. I just don't see that as viable. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. But it, but uh, it's an, a very idiosyncratic thing that pertains to golf. Well, tennis perhaps similarly. What you're talking about is the, the pulling power of the majors, um, which uh, you can't have on a breakaway tour. You can't call yourself, you know, the the Riyadh masters and have it mean anything the same. Uh, I get that. Uh, so wh- wh- where are we? It comes back to the same old thing. Sport generates money and distributes it a little bit across the boards as instead of giving the main people what they should earn if you just looked at the, the, the value they're generating. That's where... Uh, European football has been for 30 years and the changes to the Champions League, they keep coming back and saying, we want to stay in, we want to be honourable, we want to honour the Champions League and the World Cup and everything like that, but you do realise we generate all the money, give us a wee bit more, and that's been the story of the last 30 years. I would suggest, Grant, that you're at the start of this journey now, and um, I don't know how it ends because we saw football uh, last month, it didn't end well, uh, this, but... Sport needs to grasp, just like any other content industry has grasped, which is that the money is generated by box office. Uh, And, you know, Giles knows that better than anybody. He seduced uh, Tiger to, I think it was a world match play, um, because he knows that's where the value is. Yeah, and the reason I said that I thought Rory's comments the other week were... um, a little misjudged because actually I think Rory generally has the pulse of the game. I think he is a purist of the game and he understands the hierarchy of the game. <clears throat> but when I hear players sort of talking about defending, defending the status quo of uh, how dare there be a rebel, a rebel um, organization 
uh, trying to rise up to uh, to, to take on the, the the status quo. And yet, most of these top players have completely shaken the status quo by taking the money that they want, that they need, including appearance fees that don't exist on the PGA Tour, but they do. It, it's there's a great hypocrisy that yep. the top players sure. talk about saying we're here to defend the people and the establishment when they haven't defended the establishment at all through their agents in particular they've absolutely reaped the the biggest of the big money Bingo. and isn't it easy 100% isn't it easy when you're worth 100 million then to start becoming more like robin hood much much easier so all I'm saying with Rory is not actually about the, the suit. I actually hope that the, the status quo can preserve. I see what Jay Monaghan has done by, um, it's a bit clunky to try and have uh, incentives for the most popular players to be incentivized. There's a bit more they could do that, particularly around, I won't get into it, but player, how the, attracting more people to the game of golf and data around the playing of the golf, they could really incentivize to help grow that sport. But in the main, I want I want to see the status quo preserve. I just hate it when players start talking like this because I have written some really, really, really chunky checks for people who they should be playing for for the love of the game. If you take it to the the, the next level, and no, 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 they'll come back and defend a tournament, but providing you put a a couple more noughts on the check that they get to play as well as the prize money. So I just it's strict in my craw because I. I, I Anyway, I, I've been a financer of, of the sport, um, but I do hope that they will that they'll settle down. I think that the European Tour have got into lockstep now with the PGA Tour. They have to, but I think that's a good thing. And with the majors sitting as they are, it will always be in golf. It'll be the mark of your of your brilliance of how many majors you have won. That will be the the. Yeah. the and in a sense, golf is defended by the fact that the majors are independent of the tours. Yeah. Thank goodness. Otherwise, it will be complete bedlam right now. Yeah. No. But but having said that, look, I, I, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be that difficult to ban certain players from playing in the majors, right? I mean, that would be the stick with which you would which of you would beat would be. this down, right? That's that's how that will work. But look, the, the, the common theme here, gentlemen, seems to be the agents. Right? Go go figure. It's the agents getting involved here um, who are getting a sniff at. The amount of money on offer here, and and uh, and doing what the players themselves either wouldn't want to do, or, or or wouldn't be up to doing, or wouldn't have the first idea to do, and that is demanding ridiculous amounts of money, um, a big slice of which goes into their own pockets on behalf of their clients, and that's that's perhaps another thing that needs to be looked at. But if that's possible, Roger. Well, like I said, I think uh, I think data will help a lot of. Um, clarifying that but let's not forget that the the archetypal sports agent uh, Ari Emanuel runs uh, Endeavor IMG William Morris and they've just got their IPO away and that's the mentality and I don't blame them you know I don't blame somebody saying you know cut the crap you know that my client generates x percent of what this sport is is all about and he's only getting x uh, divided by 50 uh, percent just now so pay on more I, I don't mind that what i mind is what i said before where and certainly in football they use the kind of like the hot streak of the moment to to bid up and 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 i mean have you ever noticed how well players play in the last year of their contract have you ever yeah, noticed look, that right we, we saw this uh the perfect example of this right the Sunderland until i die documentary the young guy josh madger 
who had a hot streak and ended up at the end of that season, despite all the protestations of the of the fans and management trying to keep him, took the money on offer and went to play in France. Um, you know, and and now a couple of years later, he's he's back playing for Fulham and he scored a couple of goals, but he's 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 not been the savior for Fulham. He's not he's not been especially good because none of the team have been good but but that we we saw that happen in in almost in real time all of us that watched that documentary Roger. yeah and I, I do think it's going to change um so let's not um conflate two three things that we can throw in the melting point and try uh, and try and um there is there is one about i think agents can be uh, better controlled by the use of data there is, on the other side, an ever more uh, clear uh, correlation between box office and value and, and box office getting more of the rewards. Th- those two can uh, like, uh, go in different directions. Uh, so, as I said to you the other day, uh, this is all a beautiful chaos, uh, uh, Grant. Um, it's it's an amazing moment in sport. Amazing. Giles, sorry, you look like you were about to say something then. Well, no, and what I'd just like to say is you talk about beautiful moments in sport. And again, this will be uh, for those who are in Europe or in the States, may not this may not resonate so much. But all of last week, there's been a real reminder of how important sport is to both fans, but also to players with the every four years, the British and Irish Lions get selected. And, oh, yes. and you see something that is very special in sport. And it's no different from when you get picked for your under 11 team of that moment when you see a young person who's had their dreams either shattered or their dreams um, lived by a selection to what is one of the great sporting tradition, which is the British and Irish Lions going on tour as they are to South Africa this summer, despite COVID. When we fingers crossed that will happen. But for me, just seeing the adulation and then people talking on interviews about being selected that you've got, I think, for the first time for many, many years, you've got some Scotsmen who've been selected into the squad. I think there are eight this time, which is fantastic. It's a resurgence. Is that fair? Is that fair? Or is Absolutely that a fair. Bit... Absolutely it fair. It's not, yeah, you know, yeah. let's make sure they don't go independent. Let's bring them into the British line. <laughs> it's fair. No, no. I, I, I wouldn't do that past them. No, Grant, no. I wouldn't they, do that past it, them. It, it, Roger, we don't want to keep you that bad, mate. We'd rather win the rugby tour. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> no, and um, it's just for me, just a reminder, listening to some of the young men who've been interviewed over the week is there's huge media speculation about who's going to be in, who's out, and then they get selected by Warren Gatland, another hard-nosed New Zealander, good lad. But, boy, you don't want to catch him on the wrong side of a bottle of red. He can really motor that guy. God help them. <laughs> God help them in the team room in a lockdown in New Z- in South Africa. Christ. Um, anyway, I just I just saw some interviews with some people and just reminded me, uh, as we remember as kids, as we remember from our children, what it means when you get selected for something yes. and the yes. pride of what that means to people, whether it's on an international sporting event or whether it's at your own level, at a county level or town level or school level, club, whatever. That's what we're doing it all for. It was just magnificent and it just made my week last week, I have to say. But and, again, and, and, yeah, Giles, sorry, it, sorry, it comes back to that pride about playing for the jersey because the lions tour is a phenomenal money-making machine every single time out but i guarantee you to your point all the players that got selected for that would have paid ungodly amounts of money to get on that team anyway so there is a way to do this there is a way to play for the badge and it be a commercial success and the money go not to the players necessarily and certainly not to agents 
but into the game, to the grassroots, there is a way to do this, right? We, we, they have Respo- to find a better way to do it, but there is a way to do it. Responsible finance, whether it comes from private right. equity, whether it comes from good management, that's where our sports, we need them for the future because, again, the joy we get, whether it's a 1-0 win in the football or whether it's a Bridge <clears throat> Lions tour, whether it's the cricket, whatever it may be, that's why we're getting up early at silly hours to watch highlights and all the rest of it. I love why, the lines. I love and, the lines. And why we have the podcast. So it's, um, for me, it's we, we live at such exciting times because we talk about the seismic commercial landscape shift, but it has to come. It's I think there's a Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, indeed. Absolutely right. Spider-Man's uncle, I believe. Not, <laughs> it was. Wrong. It wasn't actually Spider-Man himself. Um, well, look, gentlemen. Uh, this is a bit, father, the, uh, foster father, I think, would be the right. Yeah, his uncle. Yeah. Uncle Ben. Uh, oh. no, he, uh, not the guy who made the rice. The other Uncle Ben. Spider-Man's Uncle Ben. Um, now, listen, before we close, gentlemen, um, because that, that time was almost upon us. Roger, this one's for you. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I, I happened upon um, a show on the BBC iPlayer called The Gods of Snooker. Have you seen this? No. This is for you. Now, we want to talk about the changes in sport. Um, snooker now, if you take Ronnie O'Sullivan out of snooker today, it, I mean, you'd probably maybe know the names of three or four players There's and it has become, nothing it's become the most sterile sport yeah, yeah. imaginable. Nothing there. The Gods of Snooker is a three-part um, uh, documentary series on the BBC iPlayer. You'll find it on there for anyone that can access that. Uh, the first episode, which I saw last night, focused on Alex Higgins. Oh, I wonder why. Who I know, who I know is is a particular favourite of yours. But when you watch this, Rog, and you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, and into the 90s of snooker, Glorious. and you realise, A, what an inno- they had 15 million people watching the final of the World <laughs> Snooker Championships at one point, right? At one o'clock but you in the look morning. At, right. But you look, at, you look at the characters, you look at the stories behind what was going on with the with the drugs and the hookers and the booze and the, I mean it was absolutely unbelievable what a, a cultural phenomenon snooker was back yes. in the eighties. And when you yes. look at the game itself, it's hard to believe the amount of tension there was around some of those matches. <laughs> so for anyone anyone too young to remember snooker in its heyday back in the nineteen eighties. Do yourself a favour, dig out this documentary series on the BBC iPlayer, Gods of Snooker, and 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 see a game that you will not recognise and you will, I promise you, <laughs> wish still existed because it was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, let's let's kind of like close the circle on that because uh, you, you started with uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, son of Northern Ireland, who I believe, as Giles has said, has got that X factor that, that takes a sport forward. Um, whereas maybe people that, that, that do more uh, in terms of prizes and, and things like that don't have that same kind of empathy and charisma. That's the word I was looking for. Um, let's close that circle with another son of Northern Ireland, Alex Higgins, who I think it, undoubtedly we can say is one of the very few people to have actually invented a modern sport, which was snooker. Before Alex Higgins, it was what it was, backstreet, uh, you know, old guys just playing each other, nobody cared, then came Alex. Uh, box office charisma, um, Sons of Northern Ireland. Yeah, exactly right. Well, listen, gentlemen, as always, it's been it's been a fun hour out here in the middle. We should probably all get back to work, so I will, uh, I will bid you all farewell, and uh, all that remains is to thank everybody out there for listening to us waffling away here um, on our lunch break. Um, we enjoy getting all the feedback we can from you, so please, if you're not following us already, 
You can do that easily. You'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store. That would really, really help us. You can follow me if you're not doing so already. You'll find me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me, uh, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.